This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So fascinating story about Zulresso, Jason. This is the world's first ever drug for post postpartum depression. It cleared a major hurdle uh, when it got approval from the FDA this week. Uh, there are still, though, some big challenges uh, for the drugs developer. Cynthia Coons is U.S. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. She's been following this story and reporting on it in depth. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Jill Weber, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek Magazine. So great to have you both here. Cynthia, kick it off with us, because I know you've done several stories uh, for the magazine uh, and Bloomberg on this. So big deal, got the approval. But it ain't over. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a really interesting drug. Typically, the challenge is getting the drug approved. And in this case, the challenge is really going to be getting it to patients. And that's because it's a two and a half day continuous infusion. So a woman diagnosed with postpartum would be in her first year, within her first year of having a baby. And so this is going to require women being able to leave their baby for two and a half days for starters, and also for the medical establishment to create the venues within which she can take the drug. And so it's going to mean finding hospital beds, finding skilled nursing facilities, and new places where they haven't been treating this condition to do this continuous infusion uh, drug. So to me, it's like there's this great idea and a breakthrough, and then there's like the reality. So it's like maybe you've, you've nailed the drug, but maybe patients, I mean, I can't imagine like a mother actually saying, I'm going to give you my kid and go sit in the hospital because it's not a pill. It's via IV, right? Like you're taking this thing via drip. Exactly. So the thing that's really, really exciting about this drug, and, and, and we can't fail to mention that, is that it works very quickly. And so typically, if you're diagnosed with this condition, you might wait weeks for drugs to kick in. And so the big upside here is that if you have a woman who's severely postpartum depressed, she would be able to get a quick, quick sort of ideally sort of a quick response to this if she responds. The the problem is all of the issues you raise, where does she go to get the drug? It's also priced at $34,000. So are the insurers going to cover it? So the company's job here is different from what a company would normally have to do. Normally, they have to educate about the condition, educate the providers to give the drug. They have to do all of that and then get the facilities and work with the facilities to get them up to speed so that they can give this drug. And so what does Sage say at this point? How are they gaming this out? And and what happens next for them? They're really excited about this drug. Um, They have started to do the work to help develop the facilities, and they see it as the world is going to adapt. This is such a remarkable breakthrough, Mm -hmm. and it is in terms of treating treating this condition that the world is going to rise to meet it. Uh, the problem with healthcare is change in healthcare that's expensive tends to be a little bit harder to adjust to because everyone's insurance plans have to be willing to pay for it. So that's part of what they're going to have to do is get the reimbursement coverage. They are working very hard on that. I think they've dedicated a lot of resources to that, but they're a small company. So it's not quite the same thing as J&J rolling out with a drug and being mm-hmm. able to do this much faster. And, and let's zoom out a little bit. Help us have a better sense of the scale of the problem of of postpartum depression. What, what kind of scenario are we looking at here? So postpartum depression in of itself, the estimates vary widely. It's generally the CDC says about one in nine new mothers in the U.S., although some states the rates are as high as one in five. The question around this drug is, is it going to be reserved for the most severe patient who is based 
basically going to be hospitalized anyway? Or is it going to be for the patient who may or may not be hospitalized if she were not, if this drug were not available, but she would see this as her option? Sage is also developing a pill. They're far along in the studies of that, but psychiatric drugs are notoriously hard to develop and they succeed when they succeed. So they have this experimental product in the pipeline that won't have the same challenges as Zolresso, but right now their job is to get this off the ground. And, and what other non-SAGE options exist for women um, who are who are diagnosed with postpartum depression? So from a drug perspective, they'd be given antidepressants. And antidepressants, from what I understand, do work in postpartum depression, but antidepressants in general, there's a, it takes a while to find a match. So patients might have to wait six weeks and they didn't respond to this and then they'll be given a different drug. So the, the problem with antidepressants is the, the lag time that exists currently. So what I, what I found staggering is uh, um, that, okay, so if you decide to do it, you can afford to do it. Good luck because you might not be able to find a bed to do it. That's... That's- that's, Crazy. that's going to be the challenge. Now, there are a few very specialized centers in the U.S. that are ready for this, but it's very few, and they're big academic centers, and they're areas that might be doing clinical trials already. So if you're not living near UNC or some of these top centers that might be ready for it, it's probably going to take a lot longer. But that's really the open question, and, and there's a lot of debate within the financial analyst community about how long it's going to take Sage to really make money off this. Is it considered to be a billion-dollar drug? What's the market here? I don't think at this stage it is, but I think it's just, it really depends on if their pill succeeds as well. Because in a sense, mm-hmm. if their pill succeeds, these questions become, these, this conversation changes because there's going to be a different treatment paradigm. And so I think a lot of things have to, you have to work out a lot of different things within the healthcare system, also around diagnosis, because currently some approximately 60% of women don't even get treatment for this drug, I believe, I mean, for this condition, I believe. I want to geek out about the science for just a second. How does it actually work? Like, why, why is this such a breakthrough and what allows it to work so quickly? And just got about 30 seconds. So the understanding is that this goes back to some science about allopregnant pregnenolone and its role in women who do end up suffering from postpartum depression and that this drug is a version of that and it is an infusion of that. And so very basically, that's the part of the system of the brain that it's helping to reset. Um, It's definitely part of a new class of antidepressants that are emerging beyond just this drug that are rapid acting in, in depression. So it's a really exciting time in neuroscience. There's a lot that we're actually learning even as these drugs work. The scientists are starting to better understand how they work. So all of this is, is unfolding. And, um, yeah. It's yeah. pretty cool stuff. Pretty amazing. Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, along with Cynthia Coons, U.S. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Her story in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Sage Therapeutic shares, by the way, they're up about 65% this year. This is Bloomberg. So as you heard from Jason earlier, the world's biggest money manager branching out buying a risk platform for a mere $1.3 billion. Andy Massa is investing reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio to tell us about BlackRock's latest deal as if they weren't big enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So they acquired um, a software provider called eFront. And um, that's kind of an analytics uh, software tool for private equity and alternatives. 
So it's a French company. What do they get? This is part of their push via Aladdin. Is that what I understand? That's right. They've been making a bigger push in technology in recent years. Aladdin has been around uh, as long as BlackRock has, but it's a tool that they license out and institutional customers can use it for all kinds of things, including managing their risk and portfolios and trading. And so um, that... That software is mainly used for stocks and bonds, but um, the appeal of this eFront software is that it adds an alternatives piece um, that they can offer as well. So, because that's been a big push for them, it feels like, over the past mm-hmm. couple years is figuring out. I mean, we had a, a big story a couple uh, years ago. In fact, Joel Weber and I worked on it together, <laughs> this whole sort of like Blackstone versus BlackRock, and they're sort of each getting up in each other's business and going back to the days where they were one firm back way back uh, in the day. What's in the alternative side? Because this is the active piece of their business, right? Alternatives hold an appeal for BlackRock because it's such a heavily concentrated business in indexed products that they're trying to branch into something that's not as linked to the gyrations of, um, you know, equity markets or or even bonds. You know, private equity offers um, a different kind of um, return. And, um, you know, you've seen investors looking for those higher returns that they can get from private markets. So um, they've definitely been making a push in alternatives um, in the past couple of years, which is another piece of why a deal like this would appeal to them. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating, right? Because you do think about index funds, ETFs, right? This is where you go. So this would be, I mean, they've been moving in this direction, right? But this is a bigger step. Yep, this is another continuation. And I mean it is important to note their alternatives business relative to the small, rest of right? yeah, rest of the business is still a pretty small piece, um, over a hundred billion dollars, but I mean this is a six trillion dollar asset manager. I also just think about like asset managers, you like you want to be one stop shopping, right? If you've got these big investors who've got tons of money to work, um, they want maybe like a buffet of things to kind of choose from, right? Exactly. And so this is another kind of offering that they can give that they hadn't in the past really been providing for um, their clients. Well, and you rightly point out in your story that BlackRock picked up Tenenbaum Capital Management uh, about a year ago. That's a very well-known uh, L.A.-based credit shop. And it does make me think of the big Brookfield deal to mm-hmm. buy uh, Oak Tree uh, that was announced last week as well. All right, so can we talk a little weed? <laughs> it's Friday. Whoa, yeah, boy, that took a turn. A little pivot. Uh, because you had another story, well-read story earlier this week with uh, one of our other pals, Craig Giamona, uh, talking about you know the cannabis industry, BlackRock, at least some of their funds getting into that side of the investing equation too. Yeah, that was a fun one to work on. Um, a couple of their active funds have taken a stake in this um, U.S.-based uh, pot company called Cureleaf, which had some big news of its own this week when they reported earnings. They said that they're going to be selling some CBD products um, in CVS stores. Yeah. So, so this is, you know, as um, you know, legal weed is coming more into the mainstream, um, this is a company that a couple of active BlackRock funds have taken a, a very minor um, stake in. Eleven million dollars yeah it's like a penny yeah it's like teeny tiny it's like half a cent from (laughs) us i don't know like i'll buy you a coffee downstairs yeah 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 precisely so i mean it's just dipping a toe in the water but it is interesting given institutional investors are trying to figure out um the landscape of um you know how to how to get into weed especially since in the u.s you have these contradicting um legal yeah uh, 
it, it, to me, it feels, even though it's small, it does feel like an important move because mm-hmm. we hear all these CEOs come in and they're pitching their wares and, you know, they're rubbing CD, CBD <laughs> oil on uh, Carol's hands, you know, to try and get her hooked on that product. Um, I didn't but, feel anything. But there are a lot of, you know, big questions from the investment well, standpoint. Going back to exactly what you're saying about the it's, mm-hmm. it's federally illegal and, you know, state by state, it. You know, we'll see where it goes. So what the ramifications are, we're, we're not quite sure, but um, they probably wouldn't be getting into it if they didn't feel that they were that know, there was some on solid ground. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. love what our Joe Weisenthal said. It's a tortured relationship, right? Yeah. It's like we have these companies, people investing, people buying stuff, but still illegal. There we go. All, All right. right. Annie Massa, she is investing reporter for Bloomberg. All things BlackRock and asset management. A couple nice stories on the terminal this week. So in the house is Charlie Bobrinskoy. He's vice chairman and head of investment group over at Aerial Investments. They've got $13.6 billion in assets under management. They're based in Chicago. He flew in today just for us. Well, not really. But anyway, he is uh, visiting. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. You know, we always talk, Tiffany, and I said to you when you walked in, I had to go back and look at uh, the Bloomberg to find out the last or the very first time that you and I started talking about Tiffany is about 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Um, and you guys have been, what, in and out of the name since yeah. that time? Uh, I was trying to think about where that stock was back in 2008, and it was probably got as low as 2025. It's up 151% since you and I at least first talked about it on air. I think it might have even... The- from the bottom, it might be up even more than that. Mm-hmm. It's always a great company. It's not always a great stock. So there are some things that we just love to own at Ariel, and they're wonderful investments, and they're steady. Uh, Tiffany is not a steady stock. It comes in and out of favor. As recently as last August, it was at 140, almost 30 times earnings. And then people got nervous about a recession, and it went to 70, dropped in half. Now it's up almost 50% since the December lows. So it's just a, it's always a great company, not always a great stock. And why is that? Is it because it's one of these names where people are like, well, I know it. I know what Tiffany is. And if things aren't going so well, nobody's going to go to Tiffany. But if things are going better, maybe they will. Like, yeah. How much sentiment and emotion drives this name? Yeah. Well, first of all, obviously, the product itself is the ultimate discretionary item. You don't have to ever buy jewelry, although my wife would disagree with that. But Well, she's absolutely right. right. But Carol it, certainly would violently yeah. disagree with right. that. Right. And you can can cut back, and instead of buying the $10,000 necklace, you can buy the $8,000 necklace, and that has a big impact on Tiffany's earnings. So the earnings can be uh, volatile, but it's even more volatile sentiment. People get excited about the Chinese investor right. and the Chinese mm-hmm. purchaser. At one point when we were first talking, Carol, about this mm-hmm. name, it was mostly the Japanese investors and Tiffany's expansion into Japan. So uh, just sentiment really changes. And uh, as value investors, there are just times where we don't think the stock is cheap. We didn't last year at 140 think it was a good investment, but at 70, we were pounding the table. So when you and I were talking, it was roughly around, I was just checking the Bloomberg, about $36, $37. You're right. So it's In over the financial crisis, by the way. Right? Yeah, at the beginning of it, right? Yeah. So Tiffany is one of the stocks that we use to tell the story of the crisis. It, the trouble started in 07 when the mortgage market started to get soft. And uh, the subprime market started showing signs. And then Wall Street bankers didn't get good bonuses, and they didn't spend money at the flagship store. And so Tiffany had a bad Christmas in 07. 
and the stock came off 20%, and we thought it was a great opportunity to buy it. And boy, was that early, because it went down not just 20, 30, 40. It went down 70%. And um, so that's why a lot of us value investors were early, in early 08. And, of course, Tiffany ended up being fine, but it was a painful year. So take us inside the conversations at Ariel, especially around a name like this. I mean, are you are you running into colleagues who are like, seriously, bro, like, get off your <laughs> Tiffany soapbox? Like, what, what happens? Yeah, no, this is... Do they actually say bro there inside uh, Ariel? Yeah. Not usually, but, um, <laughs> but the, the thing about Tiffany is it is indisputably... A spectacular company. Yeah. We're all looking for businesses that have a moat around them like this. This is, you take the same diamond ring and you put it into this little blue box and magically it becomes worth 40% more. And uh, and no, very few companies can do that. And, um, and they've been able to expand in a way that many branded uh, products can't. Uh, and so it is a spectacular company with great returns, but at times it gets to trade at 30 times earnings and it's just not an attractive And stock. it keeps attracting – like I have a 16-year-old and she understands the allure of Tiffany now. And I you know, recently She's gave been her, taught well. Let's well, be honest. She's okay. been doing clinics. But it's amazing to see – you know, here they are on Instagram, right, looking at all these cool influencers and she's coming to me with brands I've never heard of. And yet that resonates. Well, and they were making, you're absolutely right, Carol. They, they've changed some of the marketing. They've tried to expand. And some people were nervous about that. You know, they started using Lady Gaga mm-hmm. as a spokesperson, and that was controversial. Uh, but, boy, that ended up being right. A lot of the new, more fashion-forward products some people thought was going to be dangerous uh, might turn off uh, the grandmothers of the world. But that didn't happen. And so they – and now – What's going on today, and the reason why the stock is actually up today in a bad market, is they're showing some real improvement in their cost structure. Uh, SG&A cuts, supply management, um, using technology better, using the Internet platform better. So the earnings uh, were actually pretty solid. Is that why we saw the the move around the 180? Because it was off about 2.8% initially. Yeah, pre-market, the sales were a little soft. A uh, little worse comp store sales than people had hoped, but the margins were better, and the outlook for improvements as we go on in, during the year is even better. We're talking with Charlie Bobrinskoy. He is vice chairman and head of investment, head of the investment group out at Ariel Investments in Chicago, here with us in New York. And so tell us about what you think Tiffany says about the market that we're in now, maybe the consumer market that we're in right now. Yeah, I I think they would say you have to go market by market. I think they would say that the U.S. uh, and the U.S. consumer is in pretty good shape. Um, If you're talking about the market for their products, and then we can talk about the stock market differently. But um, they would say that the Chinese investor has been buffeted around by changes in the regulatory environment in China. Sometimes the government does things to encourage the Chinese tourists to shop and other times they discourage and right now they've been a little discouraging and so the chinese um buyer of tiffany products is a little soft right now gotta ask you because we've all been kind of going nuts here about uh the first curve inversion yield curve inversion since 2007 again going back to (laughs) when you and i I think first started talking here at bloomberg um how significant is that to you yeah so i feel like uh, I had this conversation in December, and that's when it almost inverted, and everybody decided that the bond market is the one force in the universe that can see a recession coming. Everybody else admits they can't tell when a recession is coming, but somehow the bond market has this crystal ball, and I just don't buy it. So, um, I, you know, eventually this recovery is going to 
uh, stop. But if I could had a dollar for every time people told me the recession was going to come next year, even in the last 10 years. Right. And so it just it's very hard to predict the end of uh, an economic growth. Is something different? Because you're right. We've had that conversation several times over the last few years. Okay, this is it. This is going to be the end of it. And then we get another year where we see some gains. Yeah, the fundamentals are excellent. The U.S. economy is is still close. Yes, the U.S. economy, the lowest unemployment rate close to ever, the lowest black unemployment rate ever, the lowest Hispanic uh, unemployment rate ever, uh, and that's very positive for the U.S. consumer. The U.S. economy is still close to 70% consumer-based. Uh, still low interest rates make investments possible. Despite some of the naysaying, R&D spending is up. Uh, capital deployment is up. There is just, in my opinion, uh, no reason we need to have a recession. Now, eventually there will be one, but I see no signs in the short term. All right, Charlie Bobrinskoy, he is Vice Chairman and Head of Investment Group at Ariel Investments. I have a feeling you're rooting for Zion to go all the way. Uh, you would be He's correct, sir. You Everything would be relates correct. back you to would be absolutely March Madness, correct. It all comes back to the brackets, Carol. You know I that. know. Tiffany shares, by the way, currently up about 3%. Charlie Bobrinskoy, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. So check this out, Jason. Companies founded by men raised 36 times as much money in 2017 as those founded by women. This is according to PitchBook data. They put out some numbers. So it's not equal, not even close. So we're going to talk about funding for women entrepreneurs. Megan Bent is founder at Harbinger Ventures, uh, joining us on the phone from Boulder, Colorado. This makes me crazy, Megan. Um, Tell me a little bit about your experience, men versus women, when it comes to finding funding. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, you know, first of all, that these stats make me crazy as well. There's a whole smorgasbord of data that points to just a sizable, scalable, compelling opportunity for our industry to better uh, serve this inefficiency in the market. Women are high-performing sub-segment of entrepreneurs. They represent 40% of entrepreneurs growing faster than men as a sub-segment. Um, the gap in terms of the capital that they receive, they receive only 2% of capital, uh, is not driven by performance discrepancies, so it's not strategic or rational. Um, and, and so from my perspective, it just represents a great investment opportunity. Um, there's a clear opportunity for private equity firms to um, address this inefficiency in a purposeful way, build a better mousetrap. Um, and kind of more sustainably and successfully attract and retrain um, these really high-talented female entrepreneurs that are um, being kind of undercapitalized and undervalued as of today. And so, Megan, as you take this message to Silicon Valley and, and elsewhere, are you feeling like people are listening? Are we finally at a moment where this problem is actually gaining some traction in terms of solutions and people in positions of power actually starting to change their behavior? I think so and hope so. You know, compared to 10 years ago, the dialogue's happening, and it's happening at the LP level uh, and at an increasing rate. It's happening at the board level, um, and it's happening kind of at the senior management and leadership levels. We're thinking about the com- composition of teams. You know, how um, kind of how in-depth people believe in the importance of it and therefore how, how much of a priority it is, I think that's where it really ranges. Um, it, from, from our perspective, though, we do feel like we're fundamentally having 
more progressive, accelerating conversations at all three key stakeholder levels. Well, and Carol, I think about the story and the graphic in Bloomberg Business Week this week relating to boards, boards right. and women on boards and some legislation out in California that is essentially uh, mandating this. Megan, talk about the governance side of this because it does feel like underrepresentation on the entrepreneurial front is driven in part by underrepresentation on the investor and on the board front, right? You're absolutely right. There's definitely a cycle. And I would say the underrepresentation at the GP, um, GP front is also another statistic right. to point to. So there's kind of a self-fulfilling cycle between governance, stewardship of capital, and then where the capital actually flows. So to fully break that cycle, I think ultimately it will be more than a topical approach of um, just mandating board representation quotas, but it's a good start. Um, it's a heavy burden for kind of a, a woman to carry um, uh, as it, in those board roles on a solo basis. But I think the ultimate goal is that it trickle down into more solid representation on the governance side and down into the companies. There's good data that supports that more diverse decision-making at the board level leads to better governance from a risk perspective and opportunity creation perspective. So I do think it's a good step and something we take very seriously at Harbinger. All right. So what do you do? Is it a case of women entrepreneurs just need to ask for it? How do they go about getting more access to capital? Because I'm sure they're out there asking, or are they not even doing that? Yeah, they're they're out there asking. You know, there's there is interesting data that say some women um, kind of self select themselves out of the profit uh, process early on and become more capital efficient. So there may be some self selection, but but they're definitely out there asking for it. You know, what I say to our entrepreneurs is just a couple things. One is you know more consciously building their network um, to be balanced, finding female investors, finding female advisors and board members, um, so that they have kind of better representation across their investor base and increase the probability that they're um, creating a network that has slightly less bias than they might without purposely building a more balanced network. Um, That can be hard, but it's something that as I'm out there talking to female entrepreneurs, I'm seeing kind of a natural tendency for them to self-select an investor base that better represents uh, from a gender perspective their company. I think the other thing that I always say is, you know, be be willing to um, kind of know your numbers and really explain your business plan with the gusto that you often see from your male counterparts. Um, so it's about storytelling, vision sharing, et cetera, um, that can set them up for success. And then I think the last piece is around continuity of capital. So, you know, ensuring that you're not just closing the funding gap initially, um, in that first venture round, but building the relationship, uh, case study, financial and business plan that can continue to build and allow you to access capital later. You know, I love that point, Carol, about sort of telling your story with Gusto, because we talk a lot about this mm-hmm. idea of swagger, you know, whether right. it's on Wall Street, whether it's uh, entrepreneurs as well. Megan Bent, uh, she's the founder of Harbinger Venture. She's on the phone with us from Boulder, Colorado. So, Megan, tell us a little bit about your portfolio, because one of the interesting things from what I can tell is you've got a little bit of a twist on the typical equity uh, arrangement. 
That's exactly right. You know, one of the things that I thought a lot about as I was building Harbinger is how you take the most successful elements of private equity, carry them forward, but also build a better mousetrap that's potentially better designed to attract and retain a more predominantly female entrepreneur. Um, so there's a couple components that we think are really important in, in building that success study. Um, you know, one is, uh, first and foremost, we're trying to deliver scalable outcomes. So we have a, a firm and a strategy that's deeply operational um, from a foundational perspective. So it's a strong private equity model on a standalone basis um, where gender is an accelerant but not the only component of this. Um, we've got to take gender lens investing out of its philanthropic roots and really kind of put it in a more scalable capital markets position. That's uh, one of my it's one of the reasons, for example, that my business partner is actually um, is, is actually a male and comes from the operating world. Um, the second is that you know women really point to lack of role models um, and having a relevant network as a pain point. Some even go as far to say is it's a headwind. So right. we really want to make sure that we're not only closing the gender gap from a funding perspective, but we are really supporting our founders as the next generation of leaders so they have the opportunity to be um, really influential and powerful in right. their categories and networks. Got so it. We're building strong peer networks, mentor networks, board networks, right. um, sharing economics with them as well. All right. We got to run. Megan, thank you so much. Megan Ben, she's founder of Harbinger Ventures, uh, joining us on this Friday on the phone from Boulder, Colorado. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. And our next guest, he is on the road. He's trying to save the planet one chicken at a time. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to food. Uh, Matthew Wadiak, we call him Matt. He's here. He's a co-founder of Blue Apron. But he's also the founder and CEO of Cook's Venture, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Matt, great to have you with Carol and myself. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're going to talk a little Blue Apron in a minute. But, I mean, tell us about this new gig, Cook's Venture. What does Saving Planet One Chicken at a Time look like? Well, we're saving the planet because what we're doing is we're using something called regenerative agriculture. And for those of you who aren't familiar with regenerative agriculture, it's really simple. There's carbon all around us in the atmosphere. And all we're doing is we're using plant and animal life to take it out of the air, use photosynthesis and Uh, soil microbiology to draw it down into the soil and sequester it in the soil where it came from to begin with. So you're basically saying what? Are you talking about chicken waste? What I'm saying is that when you grow crops for chickens, which is about 9% of American corn, if we grow those crops in better rotations, measure them through soil samples and partner with organizations like the Savory Institute and Union of Concerned Scientists, well-documented institutions, you can actually do soil samples and measure year over year the sequestration of that carbon if you grow in the proper crop rotations in organic systems. Now, in a conventional system, carbon comes out. In an organic system, carbon goes in. So if most scientists agree that if we just capture 1% more carbon on our global land, we could actually reverse global warming. What do we have to do to do that? We have to change over to systems that are organically driven, and and instead of doing monocrop systems like just growing corn year over year over year, we have to grow different kinds of crops like legumes, like lentils, right. uh, alfalfa, cover crops, making sure that the fields are always covered and making sure we're using those biodiverse crops to feed our animals. All right. So where did this idea come from? 
Well, you know, I've been a, a chef for over 20 years, and when I started, when I entered into the, the food system about 20-something years ago, I started volunteering on farms and realized qu- pretty quickly that it was great when I was able to feed my customers for, you know, somebody who's paying $100 for dinner um, and buy that kind of food from local farms in California and different places that I worked overseas. But when you're trying to feed people in scale, in really large number, millions of people, millions of Americans, that kind of uh, farming and agronomy just simply isn't available. And there have been a lot of folks from Bill McGibbon, who's the one who first wrote the book on climate change, yeah. mm-hmm. to Ricardo Salvatore, the Union of, of Concerned Scientists, who have now said if we just change our systems a little bit and change our farming systems and our food systems a little bit, we can completely turn that around. You know, I have to tell you, I'm sitting here listening to you. I spent a lot of time with Chipotle and Steve mm-hmm. Ells and the, the original team, and they're not involved anymore. But they were very much into regenerative farming. Yes. I mean, this was this whole idea that you raise your chickens, you raise the food <laughs> to feed them, um, they eat it, they mm-hmm. go out, <laughs> you know, do what they need to do, like this whole cycle rather than it would change farming completely. But can you really scale it? I think that was, I think, one of the things so that Steve's people So Steve's a good friend of, of mine. And, yeah. and I work with Bill Nyman pretty closely and his wife, Nicolette Nyman-Hughes. She wrote a great book called Defending Beef. And she talks all about how ruminant animals, which are cattle and monogastric animals like chicken, can actually save our agricultural system. And there were actually more ruminant animals in 1491 on what's now American land than in 1492 through Buffalo. So the, the, the carbon emissions that we're talking about today mm-hmm. aren't due to uh, cattle and the numbers of cattle. They're due to how we manage that livestock on contra- concentrated feed, feedlots versus managing on pasture and using natural grasses and crop rotation to draw down carbon like we had been for thousands of years. But can we do it? I mean, considering where the population is today? Absolutely. So here's part of the problem. Our biggest U.S. crop is corn, which 30% of that corn goes towards ethanol. Ethanol is subsidized by your and my tax dollars and and our listeners' tax dollars, right? The other 19% of that corn crop is going towards feeding cattle. Cattle are biologically designed to eat grass, not to eat corn. So that's half of America's corn crop. About 9% of America's corn goes to feeding poultry. So if you just take away the cattle and the ethanol production, you could quintuple our population and still feed America. All right. Got to ask you about your experience at Blue Apron because I think anybody who's used Blue Apron, the sustainability element they think about is packaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much did you sort of take from that experience and how do you sort of think about what you're doing now in, in terms of the lessons learned at Blue Apron? It's a really great question. One of the biggest issues in packaging in the food system today is corrugate material, which actually takes a lot of energy to produce. They don't realize that actually when you go to the grocery store and you buy a big bag of like, you know, you get that big grocery store bag, you put one apple in it. Think about the plastic that's associated with that, driving your car to and from the grocery store. So when it comes to efficiency and uh, an actual carbon study, that's real. That's not just something that you're guessing. What, What it ends up working out to is, you know, actually these companies that are delivering food and large aggregated services and sharing carbon through aggregating with thousands of other boxes and delivering to your home, the, the carbon impact is about neutral to you just going to the grocery store and buying food, food yourself. So there's a big misnomer mm-hmm. around that. So there's a perception issue and there's a reality issue. And one of the things that we're doing is our boxes are going to be shipped in 100% curbside recyclable material. And the core gets the problem. So if you can eliminate that as the issue, that's a solution. 
In addition to that, we're going to be selling directly into resale and wholesale, which is actually our main channel. We're delivering to our consumers uh, via B2C for folks who are are in food deserts and don't have that access. Matt Wadiak, he is co-founder of Blue Apron and more importantly, founder and CEO of Cook's Venture. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Charles Lemonides is Chief Investment Officer at Value Works. Joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. We've been a chatty bunch. It's <laughs> a lot going on. Um, nice to have you here with us. You said it's a, a bit of an odd day in the markets today. Yeah, we were having such a nice time of it until a couple of days ago. Um, great run up. Who do you blame? Summer. I blame the fact that we've had such a big run and it's time to take a pause more than anything else. You know, you could, you could point fingers at this data point to that data point, but equities had a big run and they had to pause. And so where do you think the trade goes from here? Obviously hard to say given all the, the back and forth, but synthesizing what we heard from Jay Powell, synthesizing the data that we got, the very dour data to say the mm-hmm. least that we got from Europe today, are we entering into a, a much more cautious environment. It would be really surprising if we don't give back a little bit of the big move we've had from the December lows. Look, the charts are really loud that tell you that you sort of have to. um, And the economic picture sort of justifies that you give back some of that big enthusiasm. So, you know, I think it's much, much more likely that we give up five or eight percent over the next couple of weeks rather than plowed in new highs. I think the interesting thing is, is what happens then, because we have a lot of cross currents in, in the economy and, and geopolitics. And, you know, exactly how it plays out, it's going to be interesting. You know, it's funny. I was just looking at the numbers. So if we take out today um, and the pullback, we were up 21% as of yesterday on the uh, S&P 500 from that Christmas Eve low. So we had quite a bounce. We had quite a sell-off and then quite a bounce. But I feel like this is what we see in, in the environment. Like things are going along. Everything's fine, fine. And we, we can have several months of this. Along, and then all of a sudden we get a big drop and then we end up getting a big bounce off off of it. And then we kind of resume. And I think that makes sense with where the economy is. We're a little bit of a crossroads and we could go in a couple of different directions. You know, the, the reason for the sell-off and, and the fear that the Fed was going to over-tighten was a real legitimate fear. Um, but the risk on the upside is also really real. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the fact yeah. that we are trying to take on some very important issues for the U.S. and global economy in terms of trade talks and resolution of those things, they may go badly. But on the other hand, if they go well, you might be setting up a three to five year really, really positive environment. And, you know, right now we're, we're at a place where there is no clear trend. There are clear cross currents. Some things moving us south, some things moving us north. And it hasn't resolved yet. And it will resolve over the next, you know, two months, four months, six months. And then you go probably in a very strong direction for an extended period of time. Well, and I do find this notion so interesting that one of the worst mistakes you can make, this came up actually at a private equity conference I was at uh, over in Europe a couple weeks ago, is getting out too early. You know, Leon Black, notably Mm -hmm. from Apollo, 
many years ago said we're just selling everything that's not nailed down and that was the wrong call look the bigger risk isn't that you take a 30 percent hit and then the markets go higher and you go up down and up the biggest risk is that five years from now the markets are five or have doubled yes and you've been on the sidelines look american investors got burned 10 years ago and have been underinvested for a decade you know it's sort of natural that that happened people have been cautious but the risk isn't that you know you 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 get tattooed in the portfolio for 25 percent over four months and then it comes back the risk is that it's right 50% 50% higher two years from now, and you've been sitting on the side. I get it. Invest for the long term. I get it. I get it. I get it. But you also want to preserve capital, right? You don't want to lose too much on the downside either. Well. And I'm not saying you market time. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But are we in an environment where you need to think about taking less risk? No, I think quite the opposite. I think generally speaking, people have been taking too little risk up until now. And I think most, look, obviously you can be overextended. Um, and an individual investor can go too far one way or the other way. But we as a group are right now underinvested. And, you know, we're 10 years into a market advance, which is a long time. But, you know, market advances tend to last 15 to 20 years, not 11 years. And so while there'll be bumps, you know, the opportunity of a really open China is a big deal for U.S. businesses. And, you know, that could change the opportunity set for, for corporate America, not in the next quarter, but over the next year to four years. But you said some key words, a really open China. Right. So we've been, you know, engaging with China over the past decade to, or 15 years ago. China was a closed. 20 years. 25 years. Very people, closed place. Yeah. China's grown a lot and become a a really vibrant, important global participant. The efforts we're making now are to to take that next step where, you know, today I would say, what, 15, 20 percent of the S&P 500 have important amounts of of economic value in China. Four years from now, you know, that could be looking like 50 percent of S&P 500 companies. That's a big difference. And, you know, we... You know, from a policy perspective, we're working really hard to make that happen. And while it may not happen and it might well backfire, if it does happen, you know, the upside, the risk is to the upside, not to the downside. So give us a name that if you believe, if everyone believes what you're hearing and you make a compelling case, how do you play that? Oh, you know, security-specific basis, it's all over the place. You know, American Express is, is a great name that has no China exposure, right? U.S. financial companies are very, very competitive in terms of how they market to clients, how they service clients. You know, American Express doesn't have a business in China. Will they have it? And it trades at 11 times earnings, right? So if it doesn't open up, okay, no harm, no foul. You probably earn yourself mm-hmm. 20% rate of return. Goldman Sachs... Um, Big beneficiary because globalization and increased economic activity is going to be great for them. Two easy names to own. Goldman Sachs is at a discount to book value, right? Um, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say right. It is at a discount to book value. A lot Uh, of the big banks are banks and financials in general, right? And and they are not in China, right? Yeah. So those are some specific places. And, you know, it goes company after company after company where you can find your opportunities. Qualcomm would be another one. Apple would be another one. 
Always good to catch up with you. I love talking uh, the big trends and the names, and I know Carol Masser does too. I do. I do. Charles, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Charles Lemonides, he's Chief Investment Officer over at ValueWorks. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.